Before uh, our first reading story, I, just, I was thinking about uh, that story that Heidi shared about baby King John Sigismund. And anyone who's been a parent and raised young ones know that a two-week-old has a lot of control and ability to handle the situation around them. But, uh, maybe not rule a kingdom, but certainly. <laughs> so, I'm going to share just a snippet of the Moses story. There's more in the sermon, but the piece that I want to start with is this African-American spiritual. I'm sure many of you have heard this. When Israel was in Egypt's, Egypt's land, let my people go. Oppressed so hard they could not stand, let my people go. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land. Tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. That's the heart of the Moses story. There's much more to that story, and we'll explore that in the sermon, but that is the heart. What you need to know is in Hebrew, Egypt means restricted place, a place of bondage, a place of confinement, of being restrained. So, me, so Moses leads his people out of that place of constriction, of bondage. He was the great liberator for the Israelites. And in that African-American spiritual, when that song was sung... Those who sang that song often saw and understood themselves as the Israelites. And they looked to this country and America as the Pharaoh, as Egypt. So here's the map of where we're going today. It's Moses to Martin, as in the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., to us. Or in other words, it's promised land, beloved community, and the universalist message idea of love and hope. It is about hopes and dreams on the edge of reality, the possibility of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of equals among us made real. It is about love being stronger than hate life being stronger than death, about freedom unfolding, and it is about hard work. So Moses, Martin, and us, promised land, beloved community, and the universalist message of love and hope. Moses. Why Moses? Now, at the 9 o'clock service, I realized, as I, as I did this, that not a lot of people really know the whole Moses story. So if you think you know, I mean, you don't have to out yourself, but if you think you get the Moses story, like you're pretty confident you know Moses' story, just let me see a show of hands. You know Moses. Okay, so maybe like half of us. This is good. This is good. Moses, the gist of it is, there's kind of three segments to Moses' life. First 40 years, he's an Israelite. His mom, in a time when all the baby Israelites are being killed, puts him in the river. Pharaoh's daughter takes him, raises him. He grows up in Pharaoh's palace. And then when he's 40 years old, he sees one of his countrymen being beaten by an Egyptian overseer. He kills the Egyptian. He runs into the desert. In the desert, he encounters God at the burning bush. He gets married in the desert. He's the leader of the Israelites in the desert. He comes back from the desert into Egypt, says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Plagues. Red Sea. And then, the end of it, he's on the edge of the promised land. Deuteronomy ends with Moses on the mountain, looking over the river Jordan to the promised land, the land of milk and honey, the land he's been promised, the land he has wandered in the desert for 40 years to find. 
he doesn't make it. So why Moses? Because this story has resonated with people for years, for centuries, for thousands of years. In this country, the pilgrims, the founding fathers, Harriet Tubman, those in the civil rights movement, many non-Jews saw themselves in this 3,000-year-old Exodus story. Because the story and the refrain, let my people go, speaks to that timeless human struggle for liberation. It speaks to that struggle for liberation and self-determination. The other piece about Moses that probably some of you know is that the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, are said to have been written by him. But that's old school thinking. Modern day scholarship has proven that that's bunk. There are multiple authors. But the truth is it doesn't really matter because it's the story, the Exodus story and the story of Moses that trump those kind of details. And Exodus is a powerful book. A powerful book because it suggests that God, that spirit of love alive in the world, however you understand that, will liberate people from their distress. It might take years. It might take centuries. But God is a God of freedom. God wants liberation. In the desert, when Moses encounters that spirit of the Lord, God says to him, I have marked well the plight of my people. This is what God tells Moses at the burning bush when Moses is appointed to lead the Israelites. And I am mindful of their suffering. God hears the cries of his people, her people, the people. So Moses reluctantly returns from the desert to lead his people to the promised land. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and in a not so well-known translation of the Hebrew says, Dude. <laughs> You have got to let my people go. And Pharaoh, and this is sort of the dramatic narrative tension building here, says no and becomes hard-hearted. And so God, as a sort of grand magician, brings on the plagues. As far as the plagues are concerned, think powerful narrative device, not literal. Right? Frogs are falling from the sky, darkness, lice, boils, and then the worst, the last of the ten plagues, the worst of the ten plagues, each firstborn young child of the Egyptians is killed. And the Jews, the Israelites, save themselves by putting the blood of a lamb on their door so the angel of death passes over that door. Finally, after these plagues, Pharaoh relents and Moses and his people hightail it into the desert and his people realize they're following a leader they barely know and a God they've never seen. So there is some initial grumping and harumphing and questioning of Moses' leadership in the desert and this whacked out plan that God supposedly has for them. But in the desert, they do discover a newfound freedom. As Bruce Feiler notes in his book, America's Prophet, Moses and the American Story, they come to learn that freedom alone is not God's desire. That spirit of life or love is not God's desire for humans. Freedom must be accompanied by responsibility. 
Having freed the Israelites from slavery, God now demands that they follow the laws, the commandments, the Ten Commandments, and there's 613 other commandments. But, but the Ten Commandments at their heart, this is, it boils down to this, five are about how people, how the Israelites will relate to one another and those around them, five relate to how they will relate to, to God. The message is there is no freedom without obligation. The other thing that happens in this story again and again is this linkage of freedom and concern for the stranger. It goes hand in hand. Again and again in this story, the Israelites are reminded to show kindness and compassion to the alien, to the stranger, to the foreigner, because they themselves were once strangers and foreigners in the land of Egypt. At the end of Deuteronomy, like I said, Moses climbs this tall mountain. He's wandered with his people for 40 years. He climbs Mount Nebo. He looks over the River Jordan. He sees the promised land. And God says to him, I have let you see it with your eyes. But you shall not go there. And he dies on this side of the promised land. Now, Lest you miss the metaphor, understand that the promised land is both, yes, a physical place, a destination, and it is no place at all. It is a vision, a hope, a dream of what could be. A place where oppression is absent, where laws govern the relations between people, where the marginalized are cared for, where there is enough for all. It is a dream. And the story these gigantic characters of Moses and Pharaoh, bonded themes of bondage and liberation and promised land, it is deeply embedded in our psyches. As author Bruce Feiler notes, one reason Moses has inspired so many Americans over the centuries is that he evangelizes action. He justifies risk. He gives ordinary people the courage to live with uncertainty Moses is the enemy of caution, which is one reason he has inspired so many visionaries, from William Bradford of Plymouth Colony, to Benjamin Franklin, to Harriet Tubman, to Abraham Lincoln. More recently, Betty Friedan, in her leadership of the feminist movement, was seen as a Moses. And Harvey Milk, the first openly gay city supervisor of San Francisco, was called the Moses of his people. You see the power of the story. The one, the reluctant leader, who recognizes the injustice and who works tirelessly on behalf of those who are oppressed. At a meta level, Moses symbolizes the fact. The fact that oppression is merely temporary. Mighty authoritarian figures can be toppled, and all people can be set free to achieve their purpose. That's the dream. It points to that. That's why the story catches people again and again. We don't live that. Our world doesn't demonstrate that reality, but it's possible. So that is Moses and the Promised Land. Now, Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and the beloved community. King, like Moses, was a reluctant leader, slowly drawn into the civil rights movement as a young man. 
But as he became more and more involved, he wrote and spoke frequently about the beloved community. The term beloved community did not start with him. It originated with a man named Josiah Royce, a 19th century philosopher, religious philosopher. And Royce characterized, and King built on this, Royce characterized the beloved community as a spiritual or a divine community capable of achieving the highest good as well as the common good. The beloved community is a spiritual or divine community capable of achieving the highest good as well as the common good. Writing about the Montgomery bus boycott, King said, it is about reconciliation, the boycott. It is about redemption. It is about the creation of the beloved community. In 1957, writing about the newly formed Southern Christian Leadership Conference, King wrote, the ultimate aim of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference is to foster and create the beloved community in America, where true brotherhood and sisterhood is a reality. And ultimately for King, the beloved community became a global vision as he came to understand military excess and materialism and violence in the world and oppression. He dreamt of a loyalty to a love, hear this, a loyalty to a love that transcended race and nation and class and even gender. He often spoke of the solidarity of the human family at root. Put aside those things that separate us. There is a solidarity that connects us one to another. He talked about it as the inescapable fabric that we are all caught in, that destiny that we are caught in, that mutuality that we are caught in. And although the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was critical, it showed clearly that the beloved community, this reality, that commitment to that, that loyalty, that bigger love, could not be legislated. It can only come, that beloved community can only come about through a spiritual transformation from a deep and radical love that knows beyond words that we are indeed our brothers and sisters, keepers, that we are all God's children, that we are all children of the beloved. I had a moment earlier this week before the earthquake. I, for the first time in my life, I've lived in Minnesota for three years, I bought a, a top coat uh, and noticed on the back, it's warm, you need one here. But on the back it said made in Haiti, right? So I paid 300 some dollars for this nice coat. I don't usually spend money like that. I'm going to be here a long time. But I wondered. <laughs> but I wondered. Who made that? How much were they paid? What were the conditions? Is that factory even there? What is it about this country's materialism and need to find the lowest possible source of labor that puts so many other people in awful conditions. I'm on my own journey. For Martin Luther King Jr., the beloved community was a promised land. 
And in his writing and preaching about the beloved community, he pricked the conscience again and again of the nation and the world. He reminded us of the ideals we aspire to, the language in our declaration, all men, all people are created equal with right to life, liberty, and happiness, the pursuit of happiness. So Moses found great, excuse me, Martin Luther King found great strength in the Exodus story and in the character of Moses. It was his affinity with the character of Moses that allowed King to form such a tight bond with the amazing rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. King invited Heschel to walk with him in Selma. And I'm sure some of you have seen this picture. King and Heschel arm in arm. Heschel with Einstein-like hair in this huge white goatee. But it was an amazing step for Jews and Christians to be in solidarity around these justice issues. And Heschel described the march as an act of service to God. And he felt as though, in his words, as though my legs were praying. Like Moses, King faced criticism. He faced a backlash against his opposition to the war in Vietnam. What did he know about war and violence? About his poor people's campaign? Why was he focusing on this multiracial campaign to help the least among us with fair wages? And even his nonviolent methods were questioned. Like Moses, King got to the mountaintop and he could see the promised land. He could see and imagine the beloved community before him. I want to share with you some words from his final sermon from Memphis, Tennessee at the Mason Temple. He was there addressing striking sanitation workers, April 3rd, 1968. I don't know what will happen now, he said, but it really doesn't matter with me. He took a breath and the audience blurted, Amen! And Pulitzer Prize winning historian Taylor Branch sort of captures in detail what happened next in this sermon. Because I've been to the mountaintop, King declared in a trembling voice. Cheers and applause erupted. They got the, the image, the story. Some people jerked involuntarily to their feet and others rose slowly like a choir. And I don't mind, King said, trailing off beneath the second and third wave of response. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. The whole building suddenly hushed which let sounds of thunder and rain fall from the roof. But I'm not concerned about that now, said King. I just want to do God's will. There was a subdued call of yes in the crowd. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, King cried, building intensity. And I've looked over and I have seen the promised land. His voice searched a long peak over the word seen, then hesitated and landed with quick relief on promised land as though discovering a friend. He stared out over the microphones with brimming eyes and a trace of a smile, and I may not get there with you, 
he shouted. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. He stared again over the claps and cries while the preachers closed toward him from behind. He had Ralph Abernathy and other colleagues up there with him. So I'm happy tonight, rushed King, and I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And with that, he sort of veered off and collapsed into the arms of his colleagues and this wave of emotion and applause and tears burst through the sanctuary. He knew how far he had come and he knew, he intuited perhaps, that he wouldn't get there. The next evening he was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee at the Lorraine Hotel. A devastating loss, a prophetic voice, a man who understood the interconnectedness of materialism and military and poverty and oppression who spoke on behalf of the least among us. Moses and the Promised Land, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., beloved community, First Universalists, our message of love and hope. In Genesis, in the book of Genesis, there's the story about the dreamer Joseph and his coat of many colors. His jealous brothers see him and they say to one another, here comes that dreamer. Let us slay him and we shall see what becomes of his dream. I can tell you, there is something in the human spirit, I don't know exactly how to name it, there is something in the human spirit that when the dreamers die, if we remember the dream, the dream does not die. It might lay dormant as a little seed in a desert. It might be like an oak tree with strong roots. But when the dreamers die, if we remember, the dream does not die. In fact, in our own faith tradition, that story you heard from Heidi this morning, King John Sigismund nurtures into life the dream his mother had. That dream of religious tolerance makes it real in his lifetime. The dream, the journey, does not end on the mountaintop. The dream of the promised land, of the beloved community, that dream is a piece of what we hold here as a faith community. It is a dream of making love real in the world. Not abstract, hard to understand love, but love as justice, love as peace, Love as everyone has enough. So we can turn to these stories of Moses and Martin and so many others to find inspiration, to see how to live in a story that is bigger than our own individual lives. They were aware of the challenges around them, Moses and Martin were, but they lived in a narrative of hope. They lived in a narrative that said the beloved's children, all God's children, should be free. That love was more powerful than hate. That love, that life was stronger than death. As King said, I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. And so we struggle on. 
imperfectly, often frustrated and discouraged by our leaders, complaining and griping at them or at ourselves, at the wilderness we're in, at the confusion we face, the difficulties in front of us. And sometimes we find ourselves, intentionally or not, in the role of Pharaoh. And someone says to us, gently or not, let go of your constricting ways, your constricting policies, your constriction. And so we struggle on in fits and starts toward the promised land for ourselves, for community, this community, for our world. And the power of Moses and Martin is not that they were born to greatness. They became great by tapping the hope and the anger inside. Thus, they model that each of us can become an agitator, an entrepreneur, our own freedom fighter, our own Moses. If we are to achieve the promised land, it will be without those leaders we have now. And at the same time, we must not be surprised if we find ourselves stopped short at the River Jordan, just short of our dreams. We must remember that nothing worth doing is completed in our lifetime. Therefore, we are saved by hope. Nothing true or beautiful or good makes complete sense in any immediate context of history. Therefore, we are saved by faith. Nothing we do, however virtuous, can be accomplished alone. Therefore, we are saved by love. And no virtuous act is quite as virtuous from the standpoint of our friend or foe as from our own. Therefore, we are saved by the final form of love, which is forgiveness. May we hold tight to the dreams we carry. May we be good stewards as we work and strive and struggle to make real the beloved community, the kingdom of heaven on this earth. May it be so. And amen.